This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we've got some brilliant guests on the show to talk about some of the most important issues facing savers and investors. Joining me on the show is Laura Souter. Hi there. In a second, we'll hear from Gresham House Fund Manager Ken Wooten, who talks to Dan about two companies that he thinks could help consumers deal with the pressures of inflation. I'll also be looking at the latest figures from the UK on the cost of living. Chris Meller from Invesco will be on the show to talk about how investors can access environmental themes using tracker funds. And Laura's going to delve into the world of green bonds where rates have become more generous. And later, I've got some bad news for anyone who has stockpiled stamps to use in the future. And Dan is going to be chatting to Simon Collins from Conexo about why the financial regulator seems to be writing letters to banks and insurance companies telling them to pull their socks up. And if that's not enough, we're going to reveal the winner of our competition for a pair of fancy headphones to celebrate the podcast hitting one million downloads. But first up, Dan, talk us through what's been happening to markets in the past week. Uh, it's been quite volatile, to say the least, because markets took a tumble on Monday over concerns that Russia was about to invade Ukraine. We saw a 1.7% slump in the FTSE 100 and a 2% drop in some of the main markets in Europe, such as places like Paris. Travel stocks were down a lot and oil prices actually surged with Brent crude briefly hitting $95 a barrel. I think there, there's a sort of a fear that war or severe sanctions on Russia would uh, affect oil supplies. Then come Tuesday, markets recovered a bit on talk that Russia was backing down. But by Wednesday, performance was mixed. I, I still think there's this sort of threat of war is lingering away. And this uncertainty is making investors nervous. And this, alongside rising interest rates and higher inflation, has led to global stock markets having a really patchy start to the year. Um, so in terms of company-specific news, Airbnb caught my eye with some impressive fourth quarter numbers that beat expectations and stronger guidance for the first quarter of 2022 than the market had forecast. So here, Airbnb sort of expected bookings to rebound to pre-coronavirus levels for the first time in the current quarter. And it made some interesting comments about how rising inflation may drive more families to rent out their rooms or homes on a temporary basis to sort of provide a, a boost to their income. So I, I guess it's like people going around to their parents or their sister's or brother's house, sleep in their spare room while they rent out their home for a weekend. I mean, and Laura, do you remember back in for the Olympics for in 2012? In you know, everyone seemed to be talking about how this grand idea of making money from letting out their homes to tourists in and around London. I bet you were one of them, weren't you? I wish. I think I was renting at the time and don't think I was allowed to and also had housemates. So that probably wouldn't have worked. But you know that I would have loved the chance to make a bit of extra money. But people <laughs> rented it out for crazy money. And I used to live near Wimbledon and people used to rent out their homes during Wimbledon tennis tournaments to spectators and fans and also tennis players and media um, for loads and loads of money. I guess that's still going to be, you know, that's that's a nice little uh, nice little earner every year, really, for, for Wimbledon. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So the other bit of news that caught my eye was results from Heineken. Now, it's selling loads of beer, but it's worried about whether drinkers are going to be able to stomach further price increases given ongoing inflationary pressures. So um, you've got commodity, energy and packaging cost inflation, and then that's affecting companies across the food and drinks uh, sector. And of course, there's still uh, a slight shortage of truck drivers to move these products. But I just think it's really important when you look at uh, a company's results, see what's been driving that revenue. Last week, we had Unilever say its underlying sales growth was 4.5% for the year. 2.9% came from higher prices, but only 1.6% came from higher volume. So I think with so many companies raising prices, you need to see if customers are happy to pay up or whether demand is actually slipping. So on the subject of inflation, Laura, where are we with figures in the UK? Because it feels like every time we get something new, that figure just keeps creeping up and up and up. And it did the same again today. So this morning we had new inflation figures um, as of 16th of February, um, and they hit another 30-year high. Uh, so uh, these are the figures for January, measuring how much prices rose in that month. Um, and they rose 5.5% when you compare them to a year earlier. And that's up a little bit from 5.4% um, a year earlier. Some of the causes for the increase is clothing and footwear, for example. Um, the January sales this year basically weren't, you didn't see as many discounts as you had the previous year. And so that means um, the comparison means that clothing and footwear costs increased, but also all of the regular ones that we've been seeing recently. So fuel, energy and food costs have all filtered into higher prices. Um, and so where do we go from here? sadly further up so it's predicted that inflation is going to go over seven percent in april um and it's expected to average about five percent over the next year so that means that we've got high inflation going higher and here to stay for a while um Probably two other bits of interesting tidbits that feed into that. The next Bank of England interest rate decision is on March the 17th, so about a month away. Um, obviously, they've already increased interest rates twice off the back of this rising inflation. Um, it's widely expected that they probably will do that in March, but they will be looking at the data as it comes out um, and seeing uh, how that plays into it. But considering on the last vote when rates were increased, um, a number of the, almost half of the committee members actually wanted to increase uh, interest rates further than what they did. It's probably likely that we're going to see another rise. Um, and the other interesting thing is that we have we had wage growth figures this week, so showing how much all of our pay is increasing by. And it's rising, but it's not rising by anywhere near as much as inflation. So if we look at the period October to December, wages actually fell by just under a percent when you factored in inflation. So um, I wish I could be more cheery, but what we've got is rising prices, um, interest rates likely to rise, and wages not keeping up with those rising prices. I mean, it's it's a tough situation, isn't it? And I think sort of inflationary pressures are you know a real test for for companies this year. And I, and I know that investors are eager to find businesses that can cope with higher costs. You know, this might be ones that are able to raise their prices without hurting demand or or perhaps ones that sell more affordable goods and could benefit from customers trading down from other brands in favour of cheaper options. So to answer this question, 
I'd like to introduce Ken Wootton, who runs the Gresham House UK Multicap Income Fund. So, Ken, what do you look for in this inflationary environment? We, we, we try to focus on uh, finding high quality companies that have usually they have pricing power um, and they have pricing power because they are either in a structurally growing or structurally attractive market um, and they have a, a competitive advantage or a sustainable um, market position which enables them to, to uh, pass on cost inflation uh, through price increases and you know, clearly some businesses can do that better than others and others and, and, and some you know, there may be a a time lag in them doing that but if you if you pick the right companies and importantly you also pick businesses that have high quality management teams that can be agile that can anticipate problems then um you know, you're in a pretty good place so we so that, that's what we try to do when we're constructing our portfolios not not just an in income but uh, across across the board so if you on balance if you get that that right then you know, our portfolios should be more resilient in an inflationary environment than the overall market or the universe that they, they're, they're fishing in would be. Yeah, so obviously, you know, in this inflationary environment at the moment, consumers and businesses will be looking to find ways that perhaps they can um, save money. And um, one might be to, um, you know, perhaps from a from a consumer's perspective, look look at what they're spending. Could they switch to sort of perhaps cheaper um financial mm -hmm. products or energy products and on the yeah. business side um could they move to a sort of cheaper energy supply i, th I think obviously i've noticed that you, you you've got investments in money supermarket and inspired energy which both sort of play yeah. to these themes um yeah. on money supermarket uh, as far as i understand it's it's quite hard at the moment for someone to to actually find um a good price energy tariff because they're all so high at the moment are you, are you attracted yeah. to this for the sort of the longer term potential here rather than um whether the business can actually sort of pick up sort of good sort of switching customers um, yeah yeah in, in the sort so, of near term well, i think that money supermarket to me is uh, um you know it's a, it's a really attractive long-term story and you know, a story where you're backing one of the market leaders in in a in a, in a pretty um, profitable and cash generative niche market is the price comparison website space, um, and ultimately it is playing to that you know, helping customers to save money. Um, so you're right that there's the, the sort of a number of disruptions to their end markets. Uh, um, well, there have been over the past couple of years, and there still are now, given what's happening with energy prices. But I think if you if you can look through that, you can. Um, effectively buy into a, a business that is trading on pretty much the lowest multiple that it's traded on over the last uh, several years with an attractive um, dividend stream which which has the potential to grow as some of these factors play out so if you, if you look at um, how the business was impacted during the pandemic they, they they had pressure in their business in areas like travel insurance which wasn't a huge part of them but it was a profitable component of their business, which clearly sort of uh, not many people were shopping around for travel insurance in 2020 because they weren't able to travel. Um, they also had pressure in terms of volumes in the in the motor insurance space because um, they know the, there were less journeys being being taken out and less less insurance policies being being bought overall. And again, so both both those areas are now starting to recover. So volumes are improving there versus where they were in 2020 and 2021, um, which, which should be a, a positive 
tailwind for, for their earnings. Um, then the business, to, in contrast to many of its, its sort of high profile peers, it, it has a, a really attractive low cost customer acquisition engine in, in money saving expert, uh, the Martin Lewis business, which they acquired a few years ago. Um, so you know, that's, that's a, a, something which is becoming very prominent in front of mind at the moment, given the, the sort of widespread concerns that people have over um, sort of squeeze on cost of living. So they they have a trusted source of, of uh, insight, expertise and, and, and advice in, in the money saving area, um, which, as I said, is, is, a, is a channel to market for their price comparison business, which you know, gives them a structurally lower customer acquisition cost than some of their direct competitors. Um, you know, the business is well set up to navigate uh, sort of short term volatility because it's uh, the business fundamentals are strong, it has a, a high margins, it's cash generative business model, and it has a net, net cash balance sheet. So you know, it isn't forced to do anything um, as a result of having to conserve cash. Um, high energy prices clearly are front of mind for people at the moment and navigating the market is, is tricky. And whilst in the very short term, people may not sort of see very attractive uh, alternatives to switch to, actually, over the medium term, it should be a, a, a strong demand driver for, for money supermarkets. People try to sort of navigate the complexity of what's going on. Um, the, one of the, the, the other long term attractions of this business is uh, a shift in terms of the quality of earnings from um, a transactional business model to, a, to more of a recurring business model. So they've been investing in, in their auto switching proposition uh, so that people sign up for, for um, you know, that, and then money supermarket will effectively automatically switch them between energy providers to get the best best deal they can get. And in contrast to some of their direct competitors who are also in this trying to move to this space, their strategy from the outset was to focus on uh, the blue chip energy suppliers rather than some of the the, the, the newer uh, sort of market challenges. And as as you'll be aware, and your your listeners will be aware, uh, there's been a whole swathe of energy providers going bust in the UK market because of the, the wholesale energy price spike. Um, and you know, so that strategy is really sort of uh, bearing out to be positive for them relative to their com- competitors at the moment, because the, the suppliers which they are uh, putting customers into are the ones which are going to be the winners in this space going, you know, they're not, and they're avoiding and have avoided the, the, the big high profile failures. Um, I guess so the, the, the last thing to say on, the, on the, the company is that because of some of the pressures they've been facing short term, now you can buy this this company on pretty attractive ratings. So you know, historically traded on high teens to low low twenties PE multiples. Um, you can now buy this on on a current year forward looking PE multiple of thirteen times and a dividend yield of six and a half percent. And historically, the company has been able to, to really defend that dividend as it did through through the COVID period. Um, and it's also managed to pay special dividends when it's when it's uh, accumulated excess cash on the balance sheet. And I think that still remains part of the strategy. So we, we see good scope to get a, an attractive dividend now, but also a growing dividend over the next few years with the potential for sort of a, a periodic special dividends on top of that. Yeah. So uh, another sort of stock that comes to mind in sort of the inflationary environment is the discount re- the retailer B&M. Now, I, th- I think that if people are under sort of a lot of financial pressure, they perhaps might trade down to um, sort of cheaper goods. And, and obviously B&M is at the value end of the market. Now, yeah. I-, I noticed that you've got this in your income fund. It, it, it's perhaps it's not the most obvious candidate for a um, sort of an income paying stock. Why does this appeal to you? 
Well, again, it is in that in, in the category of um, it's a business which has high quality fundamentals. It's a, it's a growth business, so it's you know, which you know, there's not loads of, of attractive growth businesses in the retail sector. Um, and you know, this this is a it's unusual in that it's a growth business, but it's it's got some bricks and mortar stores rather than it being a sort of pure online player. Um, it, but it but it's been growing through. Uh, rolling out additional stores and, and we think there's, there's good scope for them to continue to do that for the next few years. Um, they've got an attractive model for doing that which is relatively low capital employed and, and high returns when, when they uh, launch new stores so the payback period is, 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 is pretty low. Um, it's got an exceptionally strong management team with a very well proven and, and uh, you know, referenced very very well um, and as you say you know, in an environment where the consumer is more cost conscious they they have you know, they're they're in a good position in that they uh they they they're able to attract um i guess new demographics of customers that are looking to trade down to save money and 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 then once they have actually experienced the re, the the the, uh, the customer experience of, of the company um they stick with them or at least they stick with them some of the time and and they become sort of so they expand their customer base so this is a good environment for for their proposition um, and you know, we think that a combination of high quality management really attractive fund, um, economic fundamentals for, for the for the business to roll out new stores plus the, the consumer environment all bode pretty well for the company to grow and in, in the context of an income fund we think you know, it's a very cash generative business in that space so um, you know, there's ample scope for them to invest in the capital, invest the capital to, uh, to to grow the store estate, whilst also being able to return some of that cash to shareholders uh, by way of dividends. And, and because they're growing their earnings, again, it's a, it's a stock where we expect the dividend per share to grow attractively over the next few years. Yeah. Well, brilliant. Ken Whitten, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. So let's turn our attention to green bonds now. So NS and I um, launched their green savings bond in October last year. Um, there was a lot of fanfare before the bonds launched, but when they actually launched, the interest rate on them was a little disappointing, I think, for a lot of investors. So these are, like all NS and I products, government-backed savings um, products, so they're um, very safe, which appeals to a lot of people. But specifically, these are investing in the government's green agenda. So they're investing in different, um, for example, infrastructure projects um, and kind of green environmentally friendly projects from the government. Uh, so the rate when it was launched in October was 0.65%, which at the time was less than an easy access current account was paying. Um, Worth mentioning that these bonds are three-year bonds, so you're locking your money up for three years to get that return. So I would imagine what happened is they were not very popular, not many people put their money with them. And so now NSNI has come out and increased the interest rate on them. They say it's to reflect the fact that the Bank of England has increased rates um, and also that has then caused rates of other savings products to go up. Um, but now you can get 1.3% for this three-year fixed rate account. Um, it's lower than the than the market leading. So you can get, there's lots of providers offering 1.85% um, over three-year fixed rate accounts. Um, and there's one that's offering 1.86%. Uh, so you can still get more um, if you went elsewhere. But for some people, the fact that they're backing green projects, um, that it's government backed, 
might means that this might appeal to them. Um, it's worth pointing out if you are someone who bought uh, the initial tranche of green savings bonds, that money is locked up for three years. So you're probably going to be slightly disgruntled that you took the 0.65% interest, which it was initially offered. Um, and you're, after an initial 30-day cooling off period, your money is then locked away for three years. And so you don't have the option of taking that money out and um, instead saving it in these other bonds with a higher rate. Um if you have recently uh, saved your money in the initial tranche and you're still in your 30-day cooling-off period, then you can cancel that, get your money back, and then invest in this and get double the interest. So one of the big trends in recent years has been the rise of ESG, with many investors eager to consider environmental, social and governance factors when putting money into the markets. There's now a lot of actively managed funds which do a lot of work in screening the market and finding relevant stocks or bonds. But what are the options if you want to invest passively through a tracker fund or an exchange traded fund, which is also known as an ETF? So joining me today to talk about this subject is Chris Meller, Head of ETF Equity and Commodity Product Management at Invesco. So Chris, it's great to have you on the show. Hi there, thank you for having me. Well, Chris, let's start off with... Um, I guess the basics, you know, a lot of investors will be familiar with ETFs that track stock indices like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500. But how can an ETF incorporate ESG factors? Is that sort of dependent on an index provider having screened out certain types of companies from something like the FTSE 100 and then actually just launching a product that simply tracks this bespoke version of the original stock index? Yeah, so um, a great question. I, I guess the, the key thing with an ETF is that all that an ETF is doing, the whole intention of an ETF is that it tracks uh, or attempts to track the performance of a given index, its benchmark, as it were. Um, and it does that through you know, buying the underlying stocks and shares to do so in general. Um, ultimately, any index that is investable can be tracked through, through an ETF. So as you say, the key question is, you know, what, how do you construct that index? Um, you know, so sometimes it can be as simple as just excluding stocks from the existing starting index. So if you took the example of the S&P 500 uh, and the S&P 500 ESG index, which is, is, is available, that's just simply removing, excluding some of the stocks from, from that starting S&P 500 universe. Um, sometimes, though, it, it can be starting from a broader universe and, and cutting it down to, to a more... Uh, ESG friendly version. So if we took the, you've mentioned the FTSE 100 there, um, it's very difficult to construct a well diversified portfolio and apply, you know, multiple filters and, and uh, sort of on ESG criteria to a starting universe of 100 stocks. Um, uh, so you tend to end up looking at things like, you know, perhaps the FTSE All Share ESG Climate Index, which starts, as the name suggests, from the All Share um, uh, universe which is more than 400 stocks. And after all of the exclusions and all of the, the, the steps in, in the, the index process, you end up with, uh, I think today, something like 87 stocks in, in that particular index. Uh, I think the key thing in, in index design is ensuring that it meets both the ESG requirements uh, that you're targeting, but also that it's investable and trackable. Um, so it, it's really about solving that, that sort of multi-dimensional problem. Yeah, can you give 
some examples of companies or sectors that might be taken out of, let's say, an S&P 500 ETF to create the ESG version? And, and it'd be quite interesting to know if the performance of that ESG version of the index um, is better or worse than the original index. Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, there are a number of different levers that you can pull to, to improve the ESG profile. You know, the obvious ones that I think most people would think of when they think of ESG is, is the exclusionary one. So excluding things like, um, you know, uh, tobacco or, or thermal coal production or controversial weapons. So in the case of the S&P 500 ESG, you know, taking that starting universe, you'd be removing things like Philip Morris to, to take out the tobacco exposure. You'd be removing things like Lockheed Martin to take out controversial weapons. Um, the second area of exclusions around things like controversies and, and you know, sort of acceptable behaviour outside of particular businesses. Um, so very often com uh, companies will be screened against their um, UN global compact um, uh, behaviour. So are they meeting the sort of you know, the minimum required requirements laid down by, by the UN? Uh, and in some cases that, that will also result in, in exclusions. And then the, the sort of final lever you can pull, I guess, is is actually filtering on uh, a broader ESG performance. So there are many data providers out there that score stocks based on how they uh, behave from, from an environmental, a social or a governance standpoint. Uh, and something like the S&P 500 ESG index uh, actually excludes stocks that are in the worst, uh, the bottom 25% of all stocks globally uh, within their, their industry group. Uh, and also excludes stocks that are, are in low scoring on that broad ESG approach within the S&P 500. So in that in, in the, in the S&P 500 example, that means excluding things like Berkshire Hathaway, which is a well-known stock, but doesn't score so well on, on an ESG perspective versus the, the wider global uh, insurance company universe. Yeah. Well, what about performance? Is there any sort of data that, that suggests... An ESG version is, is sort of has done better over certain timeframes than the actual original indexes. Yeah, performance is is always a, a I guess a, a sort of key and contentious question. You know, it used to be the view was that you know by by choosing to to use an ESG approach, you were giving up potential performance. Um, I think the reality is that you know that's more to do with the unintentional biases that can can, can come through as a result of applying ESG. So if you exclude all energy stocks. Um, uh, unsurprisingly, you'll see underperformance when energy is doing well, uh, and you'll see outperformance when energy is doing badly. Uh, a better designed ESG portfolio, something like the S&P 500 ESG, which is is designed to try and avoid taking excessive sector bets, um, uh, you actually tend to see better performance coming through from having an ESG filter because you're avoiding, you know, problems, issues, you know, the, the Volkswagen scandal. You know the the, the BP, um, uh, you know Gulf of Mexico uh, oil spill. Um, uh, all of those things can potentially be screened out by uh, applying an ESG filter and focusing on companies that, that behave better in, in these criteria. Uh, and certainly, the academic literature supports that that um, that finding. Um, in the case of the S&P 500 ESG, for example, you know it's outperformed the standard non-ESG benchmark by uh, a little over five percent over the last three years. ESG has been increasingly popular with investors in recent years, but do you think there's actually a chance of a backlash um, against this sort of uh, 
part of the the investment universe. I was just thinking that companies like Unilever are currently being criticised for focusing too much on ESG factors and forgetting about improving day to day operations. And even something like oil companies, you know, oil producers have been among the best performing stocks year to date, and also they did very well last year as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, ESG is an important decision for for many investors, and it's a growing uh, exposure for many investors. Uh, it also is there is growing pressure on companies to behave in more, if you like, ESG friendly ways. Um, uh, the reality is, though, that you know selecting an ESG portfolio doesn't mean excluding whole sectors. You mentioned the, the strength of performance from from you know the, the oil companies, from energy companies. You know that's if you like a, a decision that you have to make as an investor. Are you comfortable with having oil producers in your portfolio, or are you not? There are ETFs out there that will offer you exposure to, to, to either of those options, um, and ultimately it boils down to your your own decision. The reality is that you know my personal view is that the oil producers you know have a role to play in that carbon transition. You know, obviously, you know, um, they're some of the largest investors in in clean energy as well as you know continuing with, with oil and gas production. And as we've seen with the spike in gas prices recently. You know, um, we're not yet in the, the you know that future universe of, of you know, zero emissions. Uh, we do have to transition, and, and that does mean that there's a place and a role for those companies to play. Um, I've already mentioned that performance itself can be affected by sort of unintended sector or country biases, and again, that's a decision that investors have to make: how far from the standard benchmark they want to go, and and does that fit with their own ethical um, views on on you know, environment, social, and governance? Yeah. Well, Chris Meller from Vesco, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. So, shall we talk about stamps now? Always, my favourite topic. Now, Dan, <laughs> you strike me as a man who might see a price rise happening on stamps and buy up lots of books of stamps to protect yourself from that price rise. Is that true? Well, no. I mean, I could see the logic oh. in it. Uh, maybe, maybe if you'd asked me that question many, many years ago, I might have said, oh, "I could, yeah, this is something." But I, I bet I'd, I'd hardly ever send anything in the post, um, you know, apart from Christmas cards and maybe the odd parcel for an eBay sale. Uh, but is this because is this a sort of a leading into your a big confession that you have a million pounds worth of stamps? Um, tucked <laughs> inside your, the latest in. issue of the Radio Times. <laughs> no, but that has been the advice. Lots of people, people that use stamps very often, the advice has been if stamp prices are rising, then go out, buy up all the stamps that you think you might need for the next year or even longer. Um, and then you protect yourself from that price increase because the old prices, are st- the old stamps even are still valid. However, that logic doesn't work so well anymore because stamps are expiring. So um, old style stamps with the Queen's head on them and that say first or second on them um, and any seasonal stamps, so special Christmas stamps, for example, won't be able to be used after the end of January next year. And instead, they're going to be replaced with stamps that have a barcode alongside it. So that means that if you are one of these people that tends to stockpile stamps or even if you've just got a book of stamps that you've been cutting around for a while and haven't used um, you need to use it before the end of January next year or you can use Royal Mail's 
catchily called swap out scheme um, and swap your old stamps for new stamps from the end of March this year. Why, so, are they, why are they doing that then? Is there a particular reason? Or? I think they're moving with the times and they're creating more modern stamps. Um, one thing that I did discover is the big feature of these new barcoded stamps is that with your phone, you can scan the barcode on them. And as long as you've downloaded the Royal Mail app, you scan the barcode and you can watch a video of Sean the Sheep. And I think that's what's been missing from all of our lives. God. <laughs> oh, dear. What, what? I mean, I guess the, the important question is, what's Martin Lewis going to do? Because I'm sure every year he says, buy loads of stamps uh, that they're worth in perpetuity for 10, 20 years. Um, you could lock in this cheaper price. He's going to miss out on that message. So I know. I feel sorry. I know. feel bad for him. And also <laughs> anyone that's been filling under their mattress with stamps. But they've got a while to cash them in. So yeah. all is not lost. So in recent years, the Financial Conduct Authority has been sending out letters entitled Dear CEO. Now, companies are unlikely to receive friendly letters from the financial regulator. So to tell us what these letters are and why they're important, I'm pleased to welcome Simon Collins, Managing Director of Financial Services at legal consultant Conexo. So Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan. Very good to be with you. Great. So, so in a nutshell, Simon, could you just tell us what is a Dear CEO letter and why are these sent out? Okay, Dan. So... The Financial Conduct Authority uh, regulates in the region of about 50,000 different types of firms across all of the financial services uh, sectors. So whether that's credit, whether that's banking or whether that's investment uh, and stockbroking firms. And gradually over the course of the past uh, number of years, the Dear CEO letter has become an increasingly important way for the Financial Conduct Authority to communicate issues across the industry that they're beginning to get some concerns about. Um, and these are sent out typically to a particular sector um, where, for instance, the regulator has been undertaking what it calls some thematic work. So as an example, um, they did some thematic work a little while ago into the suitability of people transferring their pension from um, a, a British Steel scheme or other big company schemes into their own personal pension arrangements. And they had concerns that customers uh, were not being advised appropriately. And so they send out a DSCO letter, almost like a sort of shot across the bows to say, we've got our eye on this this particular issue and if you're in this particular area then we've got some concerns and we may be doing some more work around it so be aware this is on our radar and that's the main purpose of these letters and they're using them more and more now to as i say get that shot across the bows yeah so uh, you know is it do you, do you find occasions where actually they've raised sort of concerns or issues privately but they're actually using these letters to, to bring this into the public domain to put pressure on companies to make improvements yeah absolutely because as part and parcel of their work if you if you're thinking about what um what the financial services market looks like 
there in fact are some very, very large firms. So like your big banks, your big insurance companies, your great big asset management businesses. But then you've got loads and loads of smaller firms. Uh, they may be small independent financial advisors. They may be um, smaller stockbroking firms or, or smaller wealth manager firms. And the regulator doesn't have the level of resource to actually go and visit these firms on, on a regular basis. So it will pick up intelligence from some of its supervisory work to larger firms and then think to itself, actually, this could be having an impact um, across the sector as a whole. So, yeah, it's taking what it's gaining from its intelligence, from the data that it receives um, from organizations through regular reporting. It might be picking up things around, for instance, complaints. So it could be thinking, actually, a number of firms in this particular sector, uh, let's say it's around investment suitability, for instance, its intelligence is telling it that actually there's a quite an increase in complaints around, for instance, lack of clarity for charges and costs, um, or for instance, the sale of, shall we say, higher risk investments, um, or uh, what are known as, as, as sort of scams and things like that, that drive them into thinking, you know what, there's a problem here. So we'll take that intelligence and we'll make it more public. Okay, so it, it does feel like um, in the financial industry that you know, we're seeing more and more of these dear CEO letters being sent. But I guess the key question is, are, are these letters actually effective? You know, are there any examples where you've, you've had a letter sent out and it has resulted in significant change in either in, in, in a business or, or in a broader sense in across an industry? Well, I think... I certainly think that um, firms are taking these letters more seriously than perhaps they did originally, because if you can imagine, if, if the letter is really aimed at, for instance, um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a very clear example. Um, in 2020, beginning of the year 2020, the regulator did a dear CEO letter to um, insurance companies, effectively in, in the wholesale sector, Lloyds of London type organisations. And the reason he, they did that was because they were very concerned about aspects of what the regulator calls non-financial misconduct. So this is um, aspects of bullying, uh, harassment, etc., that senior leaders within these organisations um, were being criticised for their approach to managing their staff and, and some of the concerns there. So they issued this Dear CEO letter. Now, since, since 2020, uh, beginning of 2020, so more than two years now, then um, we have seen a significant raising of that whole area around culture, around diversity and inclusion uh, within the financial services industry, and real focus on actually how senior leaders within financial services firms actually conduct themselves. Because the regulator takes the view that actually non-financial misconduct is still misconduct and leads to ultimately poorer outcomes for the end customer. So I think there, that sort of cultural change that, um, that the regulator is trying to drive is one that they're really focused on because cultural issues tend to um, come to the fore through 
poor conduct and who basically falls foul of the poor conduct. It's that end customer, that, that client um, who is being poorly served. Well, Simon Collins from Connect Say, thank you ever so much for your time and talking about DCEO letters. Many thanks indeed, Dan. So before we go, it's time to announce the winner of our competition, which we launched to celebrate 1 million downloads of the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. Um, So we were giving away a pair of AirPod headphones or fancy headphones, as Dan calls them. Um, So the winner is Twitter user Claire Sonstet. Um, who said that she really likes listening to the experts on the podcast, even though she doesn't know that much about shares yet. So congratulations, Claire. Very good. Congratulations. That's all for us this week. Don't miss next week's show where Danny Hewson chats about streaming services with Paul Flood from Newton Investment Management. We also talk to the founder of a financial app about why so few people have enough savings in the UK and why your employer getting involved could be the solution. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.